0: Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today we check back in with Investment Director Catherine Young who is located in Hong Kong. She discusses China's current investment landscape and what investors should be keeping in mind for the rest of 2023. Catherine says China's economy is on shaky ground right now but she believes headline news is driving sentiment rather than the actual details. China's growth has been slower than expected, but Catherine says we need to reset expectations. This recovery isn't like previous recoveries, she points out, the reason being is that policy is different this time around. Each cabinet from a government perspective has been told to focus on growth, but it's a different type of growth. It's a moderate measured growth, so investors need to be patient. She adds in other countries around the world, policy response has been quite aggressive. The Chinese have taken a step back and are being very moderate. There's no golden solution to China's situation. Catherine says it's really about ensuring that confidence is restored in China, both from a consumer perspective as well as a corporate perspective. Catherine also touches upon the recent real estate headlines as well as updates us on China's growth, trade relations, and the impact of regulatory and policy changes in the country. This podcast was recorded on August 16, 2023. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses and commissions are all associated with fund investments.
1: Hi, Catherine, great to see you again. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Pamela. Good seeing you. How are you? I'm very well, I'm very well. That's for a bit of a catch up with you. So we'll let you sort of guide us through this? Because it it does seem like there are one, two, or potentially three problems that are working their ways through sort of the end of the real estate issues into the financial markets. I guess you need to guide us on on which pieces we need to be paying attention to most. Yeah, sure. So I, I think
2: the number one thing that we need to consider as investors is the fact that we need to reset expectations so the recovery, which is actually occurring, it's it's not a, a straight line, though, but the recovery we're seeing in China isn't like previous recovery, so not like 2003 or, or 2009 or 2016. And the reason being is that the policy behind the recovery is different. And whilst each cabinet, from a government perspective, has been told to really focus on growth through all the policy meetings or, or the top-tier policy meetings in Beijing, it's a different type of growth. It's a moderate measured growth versus the previous rapid growth we saw. So I think we have to be a little bit patient as investors, albeit also understanding the issues or all the problems that are occurring in China.
1: The question of stimulus um, and and the market sort of demand for it, it appears, or I don't know how you'd interpret that, but up to the stimulus picture, it's, the reason that China's in a different cycle is the monetary response has been very, very different, hasn't it?
2: It has been, and both from a monetary perspective as well as a fiscal perspective. We haven't seen those sort of big bang policies. Uh, however, the, the recovery also hasn't been as strong as anticipated. And so this is why we're in this situation now where investors just want more. When you look at you know other countries around the world during COVID or now in terms of, policy response, it's been quite aggressive, whereas the Chinese have, you know, again, have taken a step back and they're being very, very moderate. So even in the recent working committee that's just uh, been sort of held, you saw a series of supportive measures. For example, when it comes to the consumer, 20 supportive measures. But it's like investors want more and we're not seeing that. And to be really honest with you, there's no sort of, you know, one solution or or golden bullet to, as I said, China's, China's situation. And it's really about ensuring that confidence is restored in China, both from a consumer perspective as well as a corporate perspective. And that really hasn't come through completely yet.
1: Is what do we need to pay attention to on the real estate front? The 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 concerns about real estate in China, none of them are new. There was Evergrande in the past. We we sort of, in some ways, I think a lot of people got up to speed on that. But it seems like a an old story. Does it need to be looked at as a new story? I wouldn't say new. Maybe an ongoing story because
2: you know probably so important uh, to China in terms of growth, in terms of sentiments. You know, but, as we've spoken about in the past, it's lowering interest rates isn't going to solve uh, China's property situation. It's not like other economies around the world with you know rates going up and households not being able to afford their mortgages in China, it's about confidence and you know I guess the reassurance you have of private developers that you will receive your property. So again, in previous recoveries, you would see the private developers being very, very fast or aggressive. With their property starts and the funding would come from the pre-sales because a lot of people in China buy their property off the plan. And then these projects might not have been completed. Now, with state-owned enterprises making up about 70 to 80% of total land bank now and total sales, the state-owned enterprises and the developers in this regard behave very, very differently. So you don't see that, you know, very fast pickup that we've previously seen. Again, this is part of the reason why the recovery is different. When it comes to the private developers, we do expect to see further defaults. Our conviction in many of these developers has always, you know, been questioned or or not questioned, but has been low to a degree. The state-owned enterprises, as long as they take over their projects and people in China receive their apartments, then that's fine. But, again, because property is the backbone of the country, sentiment there's this knock-on sentiment effect because of, you know, no one's too sure about the property sector. Therefore, people aren't spending the money, even though household savings is 35, 37%. So it does have an impact. And again, we think there'll be consolidation within the sector from an investor perspective, and the zero enterprises will get bigger. They pay a very, very attractive dividend yields, dividend like you know, low teens. But at the moment, we will probably continue to see these defaults, which will weigh on sentiment.
1: Catherine, we hear different types of suggestions and opinions on on how the consumer is faring. And it actually, they seem to be fairly disjointed takes. I, I wonder if you can take us through that a little bit. I mean, obviously, different parts of the economy will feel different things at different rates. But how, how do you look at it from, from your perspective? What's doing well on the consumer front?
2: So it is patchy in terms of the recovery and, you know, the, the, the starting point is that households are well off. So 35, 37% savings rate. If we look across the price spectrum, then at the lower end, so prices, when we look at, you know, products and services there, we're actually seeing a good recovery. And at the other end of the spectrum, you're seeing a good pickup, the so levels near pre-COVID, um, in terms of the luxury goods. So it's the, the middle pricing that, It's sort of a bit murky, but what we certainly are seeing from consumers is that they want quality at a a value price. You know, again, the platforms are are really focusing on this type of consumer behavior. But it's interesting because, you know, again, just like it's quite patchy across the spectrum from a, a pricing point of view, it's quite patchy across the country. So you can go to places like Shanghai where sentiment is, you know, still, you know, a bit negative you know you hear of people losing their jobs or massive pay cuts no bonuses but then you get into a high speed get onto a high speed train and go into the province next door and and you know the property market's doing relatively well you go to the mall and the average ticket spend is about 900 RMB things are certainly recovering and this is if they to the local governments, you know, you have now the responsibility of policy, be it accommodative, be it tightening, to ensure, you know, going back to that argument that, that, that all cabinets are focusing on growth to ensure that there's, you know, moderate and sustainable growth coming through.
1: I mean, related to that, take take us through the inflation equation and also the growth discussion. So, I mean, we've seen growth, as you mentioned, right off the top. There's There's been some moderation. It's been a slower type of growth. There's still growth. I mean, there is always this question anywhere in the world of sort of the growth story and how much inflation you need to kind of get the growth story rolling. When we see things peel back a bit, inflation come off a bit, is that okay I mean how do how will equities do you think ultimately fare? Does it take away the growth piece of everything? yeah you know
2: it's it's again very interesting because we've gone from a period of stagflation to somewhat of a disflationary boom, and by that I mean you're seeing inflation being benign, but the recovery is is occurring. it's just you know, again, patchy at a slower than anticipated um, rate, but having said all this. It's a perfect, technically this is, environment for, for equities. So the earnings season is going to be very interesting in terms of we might see some positives coming through. But, you know, I do want to emphasize again the recovery, what, what's happening in China, and the pace of this recovery is very, very different to what investors previously thought or, or experienced.
1: Yeah, and I mean, that ultimately is sort of – Themes: what what people are worrying about. So the, the financial system itself. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the systemically important banks, the two bigs to fail, so on that that story, it, as it's translated into China, are more state-owned enterprises. They they're not a concern at this point. It's not like a financial uh, contagion has gone there. Again, help us through the headlines here, because you sort of read that property has gone into the financial of system, to what degree is that headline need to be
2: muddied? Well, I think, again, it's important to remember that the state-owned enterprises now really dominate the space and state-owned enterprises behave very differently to the private developers, so that's important. So, the, you know, the segment from an investment perspective is, is probably going to be more somewhat blue-chip orientated. Uh, the big players will get bigger, as I mentioned earlier. You'll get an attractive yield. And, in fact, when you look across state-owned enterprises and and the markets year-to-date, earlier this year, after we saw that initial rally in terms of uh, the beneficiaries or the key beneficiaries of opening up, you also saw state-owned enterprises, in fact, over the past one and a half, two years, significantly outperform the private enterprises. And one of the reasons is it was announced earlier this year that the evaluation Mix or, or matrix of the state-owned enterprises has changed. Now, for you know, some of the teams say, "Oh, we've heard this before." Others in the team, the investment team, that is, are like, "No, this is actually a bit of a game change, game changer." So, the KPIs or the performance targets of the state-owned enterprises has shifted. So, it's about growth, but going back to that point about sustainable growth, it's about state-owned enterprises behaving like some of the very well-run private enterprises insofar as rewarding minority shareholders, ensuring there's very good free cash flow on the balance sheet, basically ensuring that balance sheets are very, very healthy. And so if you think about it, everything that we're looking at with Japan at the moment, and the reason why there's so much euphoria about Japan is that after Arbonomics, the Japanese companies are finally distributing these these piles of cash to investors. But... Some Chinese companies have been doing this for three, four, five years, but it's very much gone unnoticed. So even within the portfolio, the large exposure to state-owned enterprises was trimmed because price targets were reached. It's not that all of a sudden the thesis is broken, but the stocks are done very, very well. And going forward, this is important because going back to the point about property, if property is no longer going to be the driver of the economy like the government's been talking about, then what could potentially replace it? And, and, you know, we do think it's a further development of, of China's capital markets, which is really, really key.
1: It's fascinating. You, you are around the world speaking to investors all through Europe, all, many, many corners of the planet. You're speaking to Canadian investors here. Um, what do other investors think?
2: Uh, you know, it's a bit better in terms of sentiment. So it was pretty grim after the big policy meeting at the end of last year. Then in March, it was almost on par with what it was like at the end of of, of last year. Now, I think investors are saying, you know what, valuations are so reasonable. So much bad news has been factored in or priced in. If you look at our regional portfolios, the areas of opportunity really are still in China. So, yes, sentiment is, is still bearish because of, you know, the economy, geopolitical concerns, especially with the U.S., who's a big, you know, big competition there with, with China, or they're both. There's a lot
1: big. of trade barbs that we have to kind of wake up to and listen to. I mean, again, yeah, exactly. And you know,
2: even Biden signing the recent executive order, that was very much spoken about and factored in. In fact, the focus was a, a lot narrower than what was anticipated. So, again, you've got these headline news, um,
1: but then we've got to go below the headline news. So the policy itself was much less than, than maybe had been priced in or expected? A little bit less. But this sort of
2: competitiveness between the two economies is likely to continue. And we will probably see you know periods of volatility over the coming years because of this competitiveness. So in the most simplistic terms, it's like Amazon trying to you know increase their global market share and at the same time Alibaba. So you know this relationship and competitiveness, as I said, we need to factor it in.
1: I mean, we need to factor it in. But then on the on the sort of the other piece of of quelling some concerns, you do come back to most investors and, and probably a lot of policymakers on both sides don't don't really want to see things disintegrate, right? I mean, you sort of come back to that. Yes, there's supply chain changes, and we do see. Certain types of pivots um, here and there, but there's there's still a lot of intertwined business. Yeah, exactly.
2: And and the I guess the plus side of this competitiveness is you you see innovation and R and D really speed up um, as people become more competitive. Um, the downside, obviously, is as we've been speaking about, sometimes policy can impact certain companies or
1: or, or sentiments. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's 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 interesting to sort of get you to take us through that. So when we think of a reset in markets, again, just take us back to what might be different about the reset that's going on right now in China, because it it does seem that this sort of sharp V bounce of a reset that that we've seen surrounding the COVID story at the beginning, then after stimulus was received by certain so-called developed. Um, economies and so on it's it's just a different looking chart isn't it
2: it is and I, I don't mean to compare China with a particular company but if you were have to if you you were to sort of make a comparison it would be what we're seeing with Alibaba so Alibaba as a company you know very good management team but they've they've changed a lot of the company. so If you look at valuations of Ali, you know, forward PE, you could argue is around five, six times price earnings. This is X cash, because there's a lot of cash on that balance sheet. So it's a big company, lots of cash. Now, net profit with Ali used to be about 30 bill. It went down to 20, gone back up to 22. Mm -hmm. So from that 20 to 22, management was really assessing businesses that weren't profitable. So they did a lot of M&A, they did a lot of um, new business creation. And if it wasn't profitable, they just exited it. So they restructured the company. Any part of the company that wasn't doing well, they relooked at the management team. And so that's kind of applicable to China. China has, you know, the, all the bears of China have always said that the way they used to funnel money or liquidity into the system was unsustainable, i.e. property. So the property bubble, to a a degree, it's been managed quite well. So China now has re-changed or or shifted its growth model. And that was the biggest criticism that the bears used to have. But they're not almost being applauded by it. They're they're sort of like, it's like, well, you know, we're we're, we're not getting what we're used to getting. So I think that's the resetting of expectations, and I think patience is required. But relatively speaking, China still makes a lot of
1: sense versus other markets. Well, I wonder if you can take us into the discussion of EVs and the extraordinary advances that have been, I mean, European, the EV infrastructure, for instance, is much further ahead than North America and there are differences around the world. But, but China's advances in this area are, are, are pretty extraordinary. It is, again, does that sort of allow for an example or sort of a comparison of, of where in certain areas China is just leaping ahead on the innovation and technology? Yeah, data data was just released whereby
2: China has surpassed Germany again, Japan again, in terms of auto exports. And EV penetration is large, you know, again, manufacturing, R&D innovation is, is huge. But EV, from an investment perspective, is looking pretty expensive in terms of multiples and it's a bit of a crowded trade, a bit like AI has become. So AI is required, it's needed for businesses, Ali is an example, but as an investment choice, multiples are a kind of pricing in somewhat of a blue sky scenario. And again in the portfolio, we don't have an exposure to EV as such because on the ground, especially with aspirational purchases, People don't necessarily want an EV. They want a brand like Mercedes or BMW. So if you look at EV penetration for a car below um, 200,000 RMB, it's about um, 30%. At the 400 pricing points, it's 1%. So, again, Mercedes, in fact, did a survey, and customers in China, their biggest request or sort of um, complaint was they wanted a bigger emblem, Mercedes, on their cars. So that aspirational purchase still very much exists, and you know, again, what you see in terms of on the ground is very different to you know, EV being the best thing since sliced bread. But multiples are very, very, very expensive.
1: That's so fascinating. It sounds like there's a a rebranding or a marketing opportunity there for lots of different companies, perhaps. Exactly. <laughs> it's really interesting. So we're in a, in a moment. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you. I just wanted to make sure as we go into earnings in China that you just kind of give us the umbrella view. Like what are our expectations at this stage and, and what ultimately will people on your, on the investment team be kind of looking for when they speak to management? So again, it's this, you know, companies,
2: uh, the products and services, do they have long-term growth and are they long-term products and services that are needed? Then it's about the quality of management. Um, you know, how have you sort of survived COVID or what did you do during COVID and now post COVID? And then multiple. So we're probably at the trough now of earnings across the board. There'll be obviously some winners during the reporting season. So for us, again, it's it's been a real stock picker's opportunity you know, you had that big surge at the start of the year in terms of the reopening names. As I mentioned, the state-owned enterprises have done very well. We still feel that value investing makes a lot of sense. So value in terms of finding opportunities across segments and across all different types of the cycle. So being exposed to different areas of China for us still makes a lot of sense. And as I said, you know, whilst EV might be really, really, um, that you know, where everyone is positioned, where flows are going and AI. The Chinese regulators probably don't want to see one part of the market really driving returns like we've seen in the past. There's more of this need to have diversification because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the development of capital markets is important for China because households need the markets as an asset allocation destination. So you can't just keep your money in a deposit account because the money needs to go into the system. And that's potentially why you saw a cut in the deposit rates recently. And the property market isn't also a place for just speculation or investments so fixed income and equities is you know I think where the government wants to see a lot of that household wealth go into and and from that perspective it's all about focusing on on you know the total return strategy not just potential capital appreciation but that income story coming through so again having that income cushion in the portfolio especially during periods of volatility for us makes you know a lot of sense
1: but do you reassure investors across the globe that you know access will remain open the competition the trade barbs that we see won't won't filter into not having you know if you invest in china you at some point might get cut off there's always that worry lingering yeah it's like the
2: worry about china is no longer investable and we don't subscribe to that at all so again when you look at the importance of the capital markets Why would the Chinese sort of penalize foreigners or or foreign companies? And, in fact, just recently we saw some more news coming out of the government about attracting foreign companies into China in terms of of various tax benefits, et cetera. So that foreign angle is important. And, you know, I guess for any investor, whether they're sitting in, in mainland China or in Hong Kong or in Europe or Canada, you know this sort of evolution we're seeing, of said, on enterprises, and also to attract labour and, and new graduates versus just you know only wanting to go and work for a private company. Again, we're, we're seeing the development of of these companies provide more investment opportunities. So I think that diversification angle is key, and, and also when you just look at the currency, there's still this sort of emphasis on internationalising the RMB. And it's small in terms of swift numbers, so single digits in terms of invoicing and payments done in RB versus, let's say, the US dollar. But it's definitely increasing, and the trend is likely to continue that way, especially as you see projects, infrastructure projects around this part of the world being priced more in local currency. So, again, this, this emphasis on the development of the capital markets is really, really key for future Chinese growth.
1: And you've been telling us about this in in a a few different points for years now. And as you say, this continues. Catherine, it's it's wonderful to catch up with you. Great to see you. And and thank you very much for joining us.
0: Thanks so much, Pamela. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.